0: Welcome to the GHG Cast, a window into the world of a Canadian company with a big idea, to become the global reference point for greenhouse gas emissions in the interest of reducing them. I'm Alexander Marlis, and there's been some big news.
1: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, top. Allelu-manger,
2: Allelu-manger. Allelu-manger.
0: of Iris signifies a major turning point in GHG sat. The companion declare it's the beginning of a constellation that's guaranteed to permanently transform the way that we see our world. Later this episode we'll hear from Sir Martin Sweeting, a true pioneer in the world of satellite technology. But first, we sit down with CEO Stefan Germain fresh from watching the VV16 launch in Kourou, French Guiana by his laptop. Stefan, how are you doing? And I suppose most importantly, how are you feeling? I am feeling
3: great. It was a fantastic night last night. The whole team is ecstatic. We're really happy to have IRIS finally in orbit and to even have gotten the first contact exactly on time, knowing that everything is working well and, and that IRIS is healthy. So it's, it's a beautiful morning.
0: Well, you know, tell me a little bit about the emotions that go through your mind, because I, I guess so many people focus on the launch. Um, there is also that pregnant pause between the launch and the moment that you you do contact Iris, right? Absolutely.
3: So there's, uh, there's many steps of emotions as you go through the launch. There's the initial excitement and jitters around the launch itself. And uh, fortunately, that's a relatively quick stage. <laughs> I and mean, it works or it doesn't, and uh, that lasts minutes uh, so it's in the range of um, you know maybe five minutes before you settle in and see that the rocket's cruising and going where it's supposed to be going. Um, and then when it the next big flutter of emotion is around separation and separation is when a satellite is separated from the rocket, and that is a little tricky because there's a period of time when mission control says that separation has happened. So everybody's kind of smiling and happy. And uh, the time when you actually get confirmation that the separation happened. So there's, um, you know, a a few minutes in there where there's a bit of a pregnant pause. (laughs) And then uh, there's a much longer period until first contact. And that, that's, it's not that long. It's about an hour, an hour and a half. But in that period, um, we didn't actually get any telemetry from the rocket, giving us hard numbers to confirm a successful separation. So we knew that there had been a separation. We'd gotten confirmation from mission control. But there's, there's there's no certainty until you have your first contact. And so with the first contact, uh, you know that's when we all – you know, finally gave up a huge sigh of relief, a big whoop of excitement. And uh you know, from there it, it just kept getting better and better.
0: Better indeed, and I'm sure a huge sigh of relief um uh for you and uh, everyone at GHG so so now that the dust is settling, what does this all mean? It means
3: that we take the business to a whole new level. Uh, Iris for us is a huge step forward in performance. It uh, is an opportunity now to show customers another level in the kind of service that they want and need from us. And so we're really looking forward to delivering that.
0: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a huge, huge deal, right? Because, of course, this is the first step toward a uh, constellation, correct? I mean, uh, because it's not just about IRIS, it's about another launch that's coming up, right? Absolutely. So we have
3: HUGO, our third satellite, which just completed uh, its uh, vibration tests uh, just this week as well, um, that is getting ready for launch in December. So that's going to be the next big milestone, and then we have three more satellites that we're going to launch by the end of 2021, and a total of 10 satellites by the end of 2022. So there's a lot going on. And you know this is just the first step along a very exciting journey over the next two years.
0: It's a hugely exciting journey. And uh, obviously, you guys aren't wasting any time. And it's not just about what's happening in orbit. But what's also happening down here on Earth as well. So tell us a little bit about how these satellites are going to feed into the new global analytics center that you're opening up in the UK.
3: Well, we have uh, a lot of data coming in from the satellites, but data in itself is only half the story. What people really need is information. They need to get insights from that data. And so to do that, you need to put a lot of smart people together thinking about... Uh, algorithms about uh, relationships between different uh, bits of data from different sources. Uh, And they're all um, industry specific to ultimately provide an insight or multiple insights to our customers. So that requires analytics. And so we have an office in Canada and we need to triple our analytics capacity over the next two years. And to do that, uh, we chose the UK as the base for uh, another global analytics office and uh, the office in the UK is going to concentrate on uh, a couple of very specific markets initially that we feel has uh, great potential worldwide and also is particularly well suited for being based in the UK. And I'll I'll leave it at that for now. We'll be making separate announcements later on, but we're very excited about uh, the, the um, the start of our, our global analytics capability in the UK.
0: Well, that's a, a it's a hugely exciting prospect, and uh, there's a definite sense of massive acceleration for GHG Sat as well. Stefan, appreciate it. it's been a big week for you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, there's a lot more to just launching Iris into space. It's just the start of the journey, and also the beginning of a complex series of stages before Iris' journey is truly underway. GHGSat's Laura Bradbury joined us to explain. Laura, how are you doing, and how good is it to know that Iris is in orbit at last?
1: I'm doing great. Um, so it's a, it's a huge um, feeling of accomplishment, um, knowing that um, Iris is finally in space. Uh, we've been waiting a long time for this. So yesterday was definitely a, a remarkable day.
0: It is a remarkable achievement, certainly. So, so tell me, what happens next? I mean, I guess a lot of people feel like, well, um, you know, it's launched. What happens immediately following that and, uh, and, and what's going on now?
1: Right, Um, so yeah, we had launch um, last night at uh, 9.51 p.m. uh, Eastern time. Um, So the next um, major milestone that we were looking for um, was the separation of the satellite from the rocket. Um, So that was confirmed um, by Arianespace and that occurred at around 10.30 p.m. And then um, the final, like big major milestone is like the first contact with the satellite. Um, So we had that um, around 1130. um, That was from the ground station in Toronto. And then following um, that, we had a a ground contact in Inuvik as well. Um, So we got telemetry from the satellite. We did a a whole bunch of commissioning tasks on the first uh, couple of passes. So um, it was it was definitely great to see uh, the satellite um, in orbit healthy and uh, and proceeding with the commissioning plan.
0: So tell us what is the commissioning process and what does that signify for Iris?
1: Right so i um, So, the commissioning process um, deals with both the satellite uh, bus, so the avionics, and also the payload. Um, So, what happened uh, last night um, was uh, we brought up um, the two onboard computers, um, so the housekeeping computer and the attitude, determination, and control computer. Um, so we started collecting uh, data from the satellite, it's called whole, whole orbit data, when um, we were able to download um, some of that. Um, we uh, detumbled uh, the satellite so uh, you get a tip off rate um, once you're ejected from the separation system. So it was detumbled um, and placed into a, a course pointing mode, uh, which was nadir tracking. Um, so that's kind of all going on with the satellite, and then for the payload, um, so We are really happy and uh, pleased to say that we um, were able to boot the payload um, last night on the contacts as well. And we took some images with the auxiliary and SWIR cameras and everything is looking good so far. Um, So today we're um, just kind of like checking out um, more things with the payload, um, doing some calibrations and taking um, some SWIR images and uh, just continuing to check that everything is, is looking okay.
0: Well, it's an exciting moment, certainly. And so longer term, what does this mean for GHG SET and the constellation that you're putting up?
1: Right. Well, um, longer term, um, it really expands our observation uh capabilities. Um so we have GHG Set D on orbit right now. So we've um now added to the number of observations uh, we can take on on any given day Um, and we're looking forward to launching um, our next satellite um, in just um, a few months actually Um, that's supposed to go up um, in December Um, so it's really expanding our our capability um, to offer more data products um, to customers.
0: Well, it's, it's a hugely exciting moment for Sat, Sir and Laura, I got to say, uh, I hope you've gotten some sleep this week. And uh, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: A lot has been said about Sir Martin Sweeting. But to say he's an inspirational figure and visionary who saw the potential for satellite constellations is an understatement. It's a concept which has fundamentally changed the economics of the space industry and can now be considered truly a state of the art sir martin thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us on the ghg cast today uh you know i i can't think of a better person to give us some perspective on what's been happening now uh, ghg said has had a, a few delays uh with the launch of their uh, latest satellite iris now getting into space is hard it reminds us that getting into orbit is hard you've got so much experience in this field now now is it showing signs of getting any easier and how has it changed over the years?
2: Well, I guess it is getting easier, but gradually, because um, the evolution of small satellites over the last 20 years has meant that there have been more launch opportunities. And up until very recently, most of these launch opportunities have been as secondary payloads. In other words, more or less sort of you know, piggyback, hitching a ride uh, alongside other major Uh, satellites that have been launched on big rockets and then using some of the spare capacity and spare room in these rockets to to carry smaller satellites and so that has made uh, made it easier to get into uh, into orbit for for uh, smaller companies for uh, nations that previously haven't had an experience in space but the number of these launches is still restricted there aren't all that many of them but in the last and I suppose it's about five years. There's been an emergence of a private sector series of initiatives which have been successful in developing smaller rockets. Uh, these rockets are specifically tailored to small satellites. And whilst this is a very nascent business and has not really got going yet, it's just on the verge of breakthrough, I think. And so hopefully these uh, new commercial small launches will make space even easier. Uh, well, not even make it easier, it'll make it easier to access.
0: Indeed. Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, you use a, a really important word that it is nascent, you know, and in many ways, it does feel like we're at the very beginning of an incredible time for uh, innovation, you know, growth, um, new systems um, for delivering these. Now, how do you think GHG SAT is emblematic of, of what's happening in, in the wider landscape?
2: Well, there's been, again, it's over the last, I suppose, five or six years, there's been the emergence of of what is, uh, I think, in the the sort of popular parlance termed new space. I'm not very keen on that particular (laughs) name because it sort of infers there's an old space. And I'm not sure that's really true. It's just that it's a slightly different way of doing very much like laptops changed the face of computing, but they didn't uh, remove the need for supercomputers for certain uh, dedicated tasks. I think the whole new space environment has stimulated uh, a different approach to space in parallel to the traditional approach. And one of the things that the new space environment, if we continue to use that phrase as an abbreviation, has created is a larger number of companies particularly focusing on applications and rather like in your smartphone you have hundreds of apps which are being popped up which many of which you didn't realize you needed until you got them and then they're indis- indispensable the same thing is happening in a way with small satellites that because the cost and time scales are greatly reduced compared to their larger traditional counterparts it does mean that new applications uh, become more practicable more Economic, and then this stimulates new business thinking new uh uh projects and um this you know just sort of gathers place rather like a, a growing snowball on the ground and i think for GSE, <coughs> uh gsc sat Um, This is, you know, a good example of identifying a niche application, which is really important, plays into the whole environmental climate change uh, area, um, and the time is right.
0: Indeed, it does feel like it is an incredibly timely application of hugely exciting technology. So so how have constellations change the landscape for earth observation and and where do you see it going from here
2: well the key thing about constellations for earth observation is that they add a different dimension to the previous earth observation uh, sort of environment so Um, Up until, again, about 10 or 15 years ago, the the focus of Earth observation missions was primarily on spatial and spectral resolution, i.e. can we see smaller objects? Can we uh, differentiate between different types of crops or minerals or whatever it may be? But what small satellites did and uh, their use in constellations is it added another dimension, and that is the the temporal resolution i.e. the time domain so now we can not only have spatial and spectral resolution we can have temporal resolution i.e. we can revisit and and monitor various areas on the ground much more frequently and build up a picture of how they develop whether that's deforestation or the emergence of greenhouse gases or or agriculture or or water use or whatever instead of monitoring them and getting an image every week two weeks three weeks we're now getting this data on a daily basis you can only do this when you have a constellation of satellites you can only afford a constellation if the individual cost of the satellites is uh, modest and affordable and that's why this whole sort of new space small satellites and constellations came together to to you know the individual ingredients suddenly made a really nice cake (laughs) <laughs> it's a
0: very nice and uh, exciting cake indeed. Uh, and in, in terms of what GHG Sat is doing specifically, um, in terms of monitoring um, gases, I mean, it, it, it does seem like uh, it is uh, moving into an incredibly new and exciting space as well. In terms of its resolution, um, not just what it can see, but but uh, what it's looking for, and I guess just that uh, that HD uh, view of things.
2: Yes, I mean, I, there's no doubt that you know, the con- concern that everybody has now over the environment, climate change, and all the interactions that go with that, which are of course very diverse, means that this is a a topic who, who, whose time has come, and it's a very important one. And you know, I think that the the role that uh, uh, GHGsat is 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 um, pursuing. Is one which hopefully can contribute very substantially to a better understanding of the dynamics of this process the the sources and sinks of of uh, of the greenhouse gases and and how we can hopefully better manage them so that we you know prevent the deleterious effects and, and hopefully also we can construct the way that we might uh, improve the situation by more intelligent use of resources, urban planning and agricultural activities.
0: Indeed. And of course, uh, uh, before the project of Earth observation can take place, first, we've got to get them into orbit as well. Now, I mean, with someone with so much experience of launch systems um, over the years, I mean, personally, what goes through your mind in the minutes and days in the run up? I mean, obviously, so much has to take place from a technological standpoint, but is it an emotional one as well for you?
2: Well, I I think we've now launched just about 70 satellites and each one and sometimes there have been several on the same launcher so i i I think it's about 40 launches uh so every time that one of these comes up you know there's always this this sort of slightly (laughs) nail-biting time Um, perhaps exacerbated in a sense because and i should never say this because it is tempting fate but on all of those launches we thus far have not experienced a launch failure so my feeling is that the odds are stacking up against us so every time there's a launch the 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 nervousness actually gets more rather than less because uh, you know I, I often think maybe my time has come but you know it actually launches on the whole once the, the 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 rockets have got a number of launches under their belt um actually not that unreliable and, and so generally speaking you know, the chances of success are quite high but there is that nerve-wracking 10 minutes when they're going up into orbit of course that's not the end of it because once they're ejected from the the launcher you need to make sure that the, they actually achieve the right orbit and then you need to communicate with them and then you need to make sure that over the the following day or two or however long it takes that the, all the systems are uh, are working and you know like a, like a lot of things it's the early early days, which are the most tricky when, when things, if they're going to go wrong, tend to go wrong. If you get past the first few days, then you're sort of not exactly coasting downhill, but you're in a much safer regime. So it doesn't matter how many satellites you launch each time there is this uh, slightly nervous feeling because you know how much effort as well as expenditure has gone into creating these satellites and how much is riding on them in terms of their hopefully contribution to a business plan.
0: Indeed, I I guess all those factors, uh, I would imagine, add up to a nervous morning, perhaps, <laughs> before
2: Yes, yes, yes. And usually the night before, you're sort of thinking, hmm, yes, I hope this one's going to go all right. <laughs>
0: indeed, indeed. Well, I, I, I guess as someone you know who is a uh, uh, born witness to so much, who's also uh, uh, responsible for so much um, development, uh, uh, even the last five years, as you say, um, there have been so many important uh, developments what are your predictions for the future? Where do you see it going the next five years, the next 10 years? What are the, the, the next hurdles that the industry has to re- reach from, uh, from both a launch perspective um, in terms of where constellations are going? What, what, what are your predictions?
2: Well I, it's a, it's a brave person that predicts ten years ahead. You know, if we go back 10 years and, and look at what we were doing 10 years ago and compared to today, <laughs> we would have predicted some of it, but not a lot of it. But in the space side, I, I think that there're going to be two main developments that I would expect. One is, I think we will see the emergence of success, commercially successful small to medium launchers. Um, which are more tailored to, to small satellites and do bring the cost of launch and the availability uh, of launch and the timeliness of launch uh, uh, to be much more suitable to, to this sort of modern um, space environment. Um, building new rockets is always risky and there have been quite a number of uh, ventures over the, the previous 20 years, the only one of which, which succeeded was SpaceX. We now have half a dozen uh, people following in SpaceX's uh, footsteps and I would expect that the majority of those will succeed and then it's a question of whether there is the market to sustain them. So that's one development. I think we will see uh, a growing number of of smaller commercially, um, fully commercial launch opportunities. The second area is I think more fundamental and that is in the application of, uh, of robotics to space. Um, We see it already being applied for robotic uh, uh, removal of space debris Um, fairly shortly, I think we will see in orbit assembly. So rather than building your satellites on the ground and then subjecting them to the shaking and (laughs) everything else of the uh, 10 minutes into orbit on the rocket, we will actually assemble the spacecraft in orbit which means we can then build larger structures than we can fit into a single launcher envelope and then the phase after that is in orbit manufacturing when we will essentially be launching the raw ingredients and then uploading the software if you like to sort of 3d printers in the sky who will or in space who will then uh, manufacture the satellites in orbit which means we can take a totally different approach to the structure of uh, a spacecraft and how we would uh, build them that's not five years away that's probably 15 years away in orbit assembly is the five to ten manufacturers a 15 to 20 year time frame
0: Hugely exciting. Um, and obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, I can't think <laughs> of a, a person who's better placed perhaps to uh, to give a realistic view of what the future may hold. And, and I guess as a concluding thought, uh, I mean, do you feel like said is perhaps emblematic of uh, a lot of these smaller companies, relatively speaking, you know, who are, who are kind of paving the way?
2: No, exactly. I mean, I I, I think that, uh, you know, GHGSat is exactly in that category because if, uh, and and I hop back to the analogy of the the smartphone uh, where uh, a, wide, a large number and a wide community of contributors into different applications and very diverse applications uh, come forward. And I think if you look at the new space environment, the majority of the players in the new space environment are applications oriented. And of those, the vast majority of those are actually focusing on communications, applications of one sort and the other. So I think that GHGSat is, is sort of leading the the applications associated with earth observation data and looking at what we need to understand to to, to make better use of our environment and, and to mitigate against the the effects of, of of human habitation on the earth and this is both timely and a very imaginative uh, application for earth observation you know
0: just if i could just ask uh, just just one more question do you feel like um, the uh, the potential, you know, um, for all this is at times taken for granted? Because th- this is such an important space for us right now in this time of, you know, just like intense climate change um, and, and so on. Um, d- do you feel like in the the, the popular imagination, um, just what a pivotal role um, Earth observation can play is, is, is perhaps taken for granted?
2: I, I mean, I think this has been one of the... <sighs> Sort of problems that, if you like, that that space in general has had to 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 bear over the last decade, at least, where folk now don't realise how interdependent they are, or rather, how dependent they are on space-derived data, whether it be for communications, for positioning, timing, navigation, the weather, understanding the. Uh, um, Uh, effects of uh, climate and agriculture, monitoring of of pests, for example, locusts and so on. You know, the the list is endless. Very, very few people in the the public uh, consciousness are aware of the fact that the information that they use, that governments and and individuals make on a daily basis is based on space-derived data. And, uh, you know, one of the, the famous, uh, I'm sure it's probably apocryphal stories is when somebody asked uh, uh, a politician, that well, we should have space. And they said, well, you know, why do we need space? And they said, well, we, we need uh, satellites in orbit, to, you know, but it gives information on the weather. And he said, well, you know, why do I need that? I can turn on the TV and see the weather forecast. <laughs> he had no idea. Of course, the weather forecast is utterly dependent on space-derived data. And so I think this has been one of the big, sort of difficulties that the space community has had to try to get public awareness. I have to say, I think it is gradually changing.
0: Well, uh, one certainly hopes that it does, you know, hopefully uh, spending time this way uh, to get the word out. Um, we'll just uh, continue to chip away at uh, what is such a hugely important project. So, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thanks so much for making the time for the GHG cast. And that just about does us for the latest episode of the GHG cast. We have many more stories to tell. So subscribe to us at GHGSet.com or where all fine podcasts can be found. And big thanks to John Mitchell and Lonely Robot for the music.